In case anyone has not been here for some time or has not aware, we're doing a series we call the Stained Glass Series. We started over on this side, which is the story of creation to the story of the fall, the giving of the Ten Commandments, the birth of Jesus, Jesus' ministry, the resurrection and the death and resurrection of Christ, the church, and now we're on the final one. It's, we're already a year into this, and that is the end time, the end times. And I thought the best place to start when we're talking about the end times is to start by talking about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. What does the day of the Lord mean to you? Last week I was kind of doing some things around the house and I'd left the National Geographic channel on and I came across a TV program called Doomsday Preppers. Anybody seen that one yet? Doomsday Preppers. Most of them are not religious. Most of them are just people who are scared out of their wits at what's going to happen in this world. And they are preparing to live out in nature on their own if they need to. They ex and so this program explores the lives of otherwise ordinary Americans who are preparing for the end of the world as we know it. Their motivations vary, their strategies are different, and they'll go to whatever lengths to make sure that they are pre prepared for any of life's uncertainties. The one I saw, but only saw it briefly, the father was teaching his kids how to live off the land, and so there they went off to spend a day and overnight in the wilderness to live off the land. Don't laugh. When I was 12 years old, I went to something called wilderness camp in Michigan. And part of that was that we spent three days overnight and we went off to live off the land so we'd be ready for the time of trouble. We seem to have forgotten that God had promised to supply our needs. You remember it, Steve. D did you go? Okay. I have a compatriot. He can verify I'm not just blowing smoke. What about the day of the Lord? What's it all about and how should we relate to it? It was interesting that uh, I gave a few, few people and had, I don't know who everybody is, I, don't know, I only know one because of what they wrote, and I can't read them all, but I had Ruth Pat Nelson pass out uh, a question. What is the first thing that comes to your mind when someone mentions end times? Got a variety of responses. Before I share the responses, I just want to share with you something from John Pauline's book, What the Bible Says About the End Time. He says there are three ways most Christians, including Adventists, deal with the end times. And most of them aren't spiritually healthy. I'm going to add one more. The one I'm adding is some people react totally out of fear. It frightens them almost to death. The second way that people react, he says, is that these are people who are living under the conviction that the end is at hand, and, and they look for, for every single catastrophe to be the sign that Jesus is going to come. They look for every single new idea and thought that says that uh, the time is near, and they, they set dates, and they, they, they frantically go from event to event. Eventually, they suffer burnout. Another, because of that, there are people in the church who would prefer not to hear sermons or read books about the end time. They just don't want to think about it much. 
they've been under the ones who were once perhaps themselves one of those who got burned out on predictions and events. Uh, it was interesting that John Pauline cataloged that since the Adventist church started, there has been 20 different pre predictions of when Jesus was coming in the Adventist church since 1844. 20. And those of you who have lived a while on this earth can probably recite some of those. We were sure that when the first Catholic was elected president of the United States, the end was near. We were sure that when President Reagan announced that the, well, there would be a, we would set up an embassy in the Vatican, Jesus was just around the corner. And please, before I go any farther, don't misunderstand me. Do I believe Jesus is coming soon? Yes. I'm 62 years old. Translation, life is short. He's coming soon for all of us. Do I believe he could come soon in my lifetime? Yes, it could happen. But how we live in response to that soon coming and how we deal with it is the issue we need to look at. The fourth way that people deal with, third way that people, fourth way that people deal with it is they try to blame, fix blame on who it is that's causing Jesus' delay to continue. There certainly must be something somebody's done wrong. Getting back to some of the responses, let me just share two or three that go along with some of these to a certain degree or another. As for fear, someone wrote, and I'm changing it a little bit so that you can't identify who it is, because I could. Having lived through the Cold War and the proliferation of nuclear weapons targeted in Russia and China, I felt the end was near. Now the Cold War is gone, but now we have chaos, which is worse. One about focusing on the events and trying to figure out the exact time and how many signs are gone, etc., how close we are, how instead of talking about it, we should insist on focusing on things that have nothing to do with our salvation. As far as those who are apathetic and don't want to deal with it, one word, fanatic. And finally, maybe something, I don't have one for blaming people. I'm thankful for that. The last one is one that I think has a good approach. The first thing that comes to mind about end times of the tribulations the earth will go through, but in all talking about the end of time, it's all about when Jesus comes. That is huge. I like that one. No, don't misunderstand me. I'm not making fun of those other ones. I think there's a mixture of things, but, but haven't we all experienced that kind of mixture of emotions and thoughts when we think about the second coming and the end of time? This morning, I, I want to spend a few moments with you looking at very briefly and quickly what the Bible says about the end of time. I want, I want to begin by, by looking, at, um, looking at some passages of Scripture. The day of the Lord is referred to primarily in the Old Testament. Joel 1.15 says, Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty. It comes. Ezekiel 30, verse 3. The day is near. The day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Isaiah 13, 9 to 11. B 
Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evils and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. It's no wonder people hear the day of the Lord of end times and they go, what do I do with that? I'm not sure I want to live through that. Have you ever heard somebody say that? I'd rather fall asleep in Jesus than have to live through the time of trouble. The Old Testament wasn't the only place. The New Testament talks about it in various ways. It doesn't call it the day of the Lord. It talks about it as the day of Christ, the day, the second coming. It talks about it as um, the blessed hope. It, it talks about it as, um, as the day of the Lord's return. Jesus, in Matthew 24, 27, when he was asked by the disciples about the signs of the times, said that as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the power of heavens will be shaken. The disciple Peter wrote this, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Anybody think the passages I've read so far sounded like something you really, really want to experience? I have a name of a counselor for you. And yet, we need to look at those passages and take them seriously, don't we? What is interesting in the book I read from John Pauline, The Biblical View, what the Bible, get, the, get it right, what the Bible says about the end time, he pointed out something very interesting. He pointed out the fact that there are a number of end times in the Bible and that there's really some additions and change as the Bible and time progresses, but that all of them find their basics of how to react and, and what, the time of trouble, or what the end time is all about in the story of Noah, which is interesting because Jesus said, as it was in the days of who? as it was in the days of... Okay, we'll try it one more time. You've got to know this. As it was in the days of Noah. Noah. Thank you. So shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus made the tie. And we usually just focus on what Jesus said after that, that they'll be eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage up until the flood came and took them away. And we focus on that, but we don't go back to the story to see if there may be something more that Jesus was alluding to. So turn in your Bibles, it's not going to be on the screen, turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. We'll look at verses 5 and on, it's page 8 in your pew Bible. Genesis chapter 6. Looking at verse 5. And you're going to notice something, I'm going to read it in piecemeal a little bit, but I'm going to point out what took place 
at the end time of Noah's day. The first thing that took place was that God did some investigation. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man, verse 5, was great in the earth, and that every intention of the heart, of the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continually. God does some investigation and says wickedness is abounding down there. Wickedness is abounding down there. And, and so he, he, he says, I've got to do something about it. We're going to come back to verse 6 in a moment. And the Lord says in verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, the animals and the creeping things and the birds, for I am sorry I have made them. He goes on down in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and it was corrupt. And God said to Noah, verse 13, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. God did some investigation, and he discovered that the world was so corrupt that the cup of iniquity was full, and he had no choice but to destroy it. The action of God in terms of destroying the world by flood was because the world had become so evil, there was no hope. And so God did his strange act. He sent the flood. How do I know it's a strange act? Let's go back to the verse I said we would come back to. Notice verse 6. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. I've read that for many years. You know what I got out of it? God wished he'd never made us. God wished he'd never created this world in the first place because he wouldn't have had to put up with us. And while I think there's a bit of a tinge of that, I want you to notice the next phrase. And it grieved him to his heart. What was it that grieved God to his heart? It was looking down on this world and seeing all the misery and, and wickedness and evilness and how inhumane we are to each other. It was looking down on this earth and seeing man finding ways to be evil and corrupt. It was looking down on this earth and seeing sin running rampant. And God was grieved because that wasn't his plan for the human race. I want you to notice when God does his investigation, I don't care if you're talking about the, the, the time when he's investigating Noah or during the, 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 the uh, period of uh, when he's investigating Pharaoh in, in Egypt or when he's talking about Israel and Judah or whether he's talking about the end of time. Whenever he does investigation and find wickedness, it always grieves his heart to see the effects of sin on you and me. Do you buy that? I hope you do. Because if you don't buy that, there's no point in worshiping the God we worship. Is there? And so God's grieved. It causes him pain. Scripture says it's a strange act. And then it goes on. It says, I'm going to destroy the world. But then verse 8 says, but Noah found what? Grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah is not saved because he was perfect. Noah was not saved because 
He had his act all together and would always have his act together. We know better. Noah was saved for one reason and one reason only. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord, a grace that forgave him of his sins, a grace that made him more and more like Christ, even though he might fall later on. And because of that grace, <coughs> excuse me, God had Noah build an ark so that there could be salvation for Noah and his family, the remnant who were left. You see, that's really the story of end times. God does an investigation. That investigation is, is, is shows that there's wickedness in the earth. God does an investigation and says, this can't go on any longer. God makes a decision. He says, I'm going to have to destroy those who, who've rejected me and, and have no hope of, of, of turning to me. But God acts in grace and God says, I'm going to save those who turn to me. That's what end time is all about, isn't it? And if you're not sure that that's what end time is all about, notice something that happened in Obadiah when he was talking about, you see, during, during the time of the prophets, they would write and they would talk about the day of the Lord that was coming upon the nations who were against the enemies of God's people and how they were going to be destroyed. Sometimes they talked about how Israel and, and Judah had turned against God and how they were going to be destroyed. But I, I want you to notice what Obadiah says. Obadiah says, The day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For you have, as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. That's the judgment on the wicked. But notice verse 17. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. What God says is those who trust in me, they will be spared. They will be spared. I, I want you to notice, under the prophets, while the judgments of God on nations and individuals were primarily viewed as pertaining to this life, they gradually start seeing that, that it also pertained to, to the time of the end when Jesus would come again. And so you have a dual application of much of the prophecies about the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. When we look at, at the end time for Noah, and we look at the Bible, we discover that the end time for Moses happened in much the same way, did it not? There was an investigation. There was a proclamation, a time of warning saying, there will come a flood, there will be deliverance, and there, there were the plagues. And then there was a proclamation that God would save some, and he even saved many Egyptians. There was the time of Elijah when Elijah stood on Mount Carmel, and, and for three and a half years he was telling people, there's judgment against sin. But if you turn to God, and if you choose God, rain will come. There's the story of Jonah who didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew God was a God of compassion who would allow people to repent if they so chose. Where did he get that idea? Maybe he got it from the end time of Noah or the end time of Moses. But time passes. And the New Testament comes along and, and there's a slight change in, in end time thinking. The old age is the age before the Messiah the Messiah comes and he establishes a new age and the end of, end of time. 
The end of time does not begin when Jesus comes or just before Jesus comes. According to the New Testament, the end of time began with, with Jesus, the Messiah. We are living in the end time. We have since Jesus came. Why? Because his death on the cross spelled the defeat of Satan and his, his angels. Amen. It spelled the defeat for rebellion. The New Testament has a new way of looking at the end of time, but yet it's, it's much, much similar and almost exactly like what happened in Noah's day. Let's go back to our text for this morning. I want you to notice especially verses 4 to 6 of Malachi, page 802. I'm going to back up to verse 16, come to think of it. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Have you ever wondered what they said to one another? Malachi gives the answer. It says, The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord, the same phrase, and who esteemed his name or his character. What the people spoke to each other about was they talked to each other about God. They talked to each other about God's character. They talked to each other about what God meant to them. They talked to each other about what God was doing in their lives. How often, or maybe I should say how seldom, do we do that? But let's go back to, verse, to chapter 4, verse 1. The day is coming burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. It's coming when I shall set ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. It will leave them neither you or root or branch. That's warning the wicked. But for you who fear or honor my name, my character, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing for you in his wings. And you shall tread down the wicked, verse 3, they will be ashes under your feet. Notice verses 4 and 5. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules I commanded him. He says, I will send the prophet Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I smite the land with a curse. Notice two things. Elijah is to remind them of God's law, which reminds us how we are to esteem God, the first four. And it reminds us that the very essence of the second part of the law, which refers to how we deal with one another, is found in, in the relationship between parents and children. And if you get that right, you'll probably get the rest of it right. He's saying that we are to proclaim a message before the end of time, a message that tells people who God is and a message that allows God to transform and change us so that we reflect His character, which is a character of compassion and love. And so the question I want to ask you this morning is, when you think of the end times, does it create fear, panic, continual excitement to try and figure it all out, apathy because you've heard it all before and nothing's happened yet? Or does it simply let you know that God is still in charge and God will destroy the wicked at the end, but he will take care of you and he will see you through? Amen. That's the end time message. That's the end time message. I want to tell a brief story. 
there was a race that was being run in Los Angeles. There was a runner there who had gotten the wrong message. They thought it was a half marathon. And at the start of the race, this runner took off like a shot for a marathon. He was running as he would for a half marathon. The pace was quick, and soon he was out in front of everybody else. The only problem was, as he got to the place where the half marathon should have ended, he was out of gas, and he had the second half to go. The problem was, he didn't understand the race he was running. And he spent all his energy far too soon. Do you catch the point I'm making? We are in a marathon. And I would love to think I'm running a marathon of 26 miles, but it's only 13, wouldn't you? But what if it's still 26? I think Ellen White gave us some great counsel. She says, we are to live as if Jesus were coming tomorrow, but plan as if he's not. We are to occupy till he comes. And we do that by letting people know that there is a God who has grace, and there is a God who wants to save as many as he can, who is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and spend eternity with him Amen. and with you and me.